great to see you guys here tonight. It's uh, been a while since I shared a message with you guys, so I, I probably should introduce myself. Uh, my name's Gary, and I have no official job title whatsoever in this building, so uh, take it or leave it. Uh, no concerns that way, but uh, I just keep my eye on the calendar. When I see Mark's going to be away, I just jump at the opportunity, and then sometimes he shows up anyway, and I'm, I'm not sure what to do. So here I am. Uh, welcome, of course, to those who are streaming our service uh, online tonight through YouTube. Uh, it's great knowing you're there. Uh, but if I'm honest, um, I find it stressful knowing that you're out there. Um, and it's not for the reason you might think. It's, it's actually quite nerve-wracking for me because of something called analytics. Analytics is the, the ability we have to see how many people are, are checking in and watching, but also to see when they stop watching. And I, and I, find, that, I find that very stressful because here's the thing. With you guys sitting here, when you guys check out, you know, in a few minutes, um, I'll never know because you still are sitting there. But of course, if you're watching online, they're going to click that red X, and then I'm going to know. And it's just, uh, it's hard for me to know when I lose my audience. So if you are watching online, and uh, you know, you've decided you've heard enough, and I, and I get it, um, just please, just mute it and let it run till the end. Um, I'd really appreciate that. And besides, and if you think, uh, you know, you think the sermon goes on a bit long tonight, I would uh, remind you that it could be worse. Uh, we actually read in the book of Acts about one of Paul's sermons, which it says it went on well past midnight. In Acts uh, chapter 20, verse 9, it says, Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. So, you know what? You're fine. You're, you're going to be okay. Um, if, if you, in case you don't know the story, he is brought back to life through the power of Jesus Christ through Paul. But uh, um, I was reminded of that story actually at youth this week. I couldn't quite place the, uh, the story, and one of the kids told me, so that's great. Um, anybody want to guess what Eutychus means in Greek? It means of good fortune. So this guy's name was literally Lucky. So if you reread it, seated in a window was a young man named Lucky who was sinking into a deep sleep. And as he fell asleep, he fell to the ground and was picked up dead. So uh, on that note, uh, I would suggest to you that you read your Bible more because it's all better than what's on Netflix. And so uh, make your way through. It's some pretty cool stuff in there. But we're not here to talk about Eutychus tonight. We're actually here to talk about David. And I'm not sure how we can best describe David. Um, but maybe the best way is to simply ask a question. Why would God describe David as a man after his own heart? In Acts 13, 22, it says, but God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. And, and to simply ask the question, why, did, why is this man seen as such a hero of the Old Testament when he also seems so flawed? He was a shepherd, a king, a poet, a musician. He was a trusted friend, a loyal subject, and he was a mighty warrior that went far beyond what happened that one day against Goliath. But he was also an adulterer. He arranged for the murder of a competitor, and he directly disobeyed God on more than one occasion. And so we're going to try to answer this question uh, by putting together, uh, by looking at some, some conflict in David's life. In fact, almost half of the Psalms, 72 out of 150 Psalms, deal with an enemy or conflict of some sort. And so this week, we're going to look at David versus Goliath. And in subsequent weeks, uh, if there are subsequent weeks, uh, we'll look at uh, David versus Saul and eventually David versus himself. But tonight we're going to focus on a little battle in the Valley of Elah. And it's interesting to read back about this battle because it took place 3,000 years ago. Because today warfare's changed. 
War takes place from a distance. This is what it looks like now. It looks like drone footage, or it looks like the sniper scope. It looks like a video game sometimes. And it's from a distance, and it's impersonal. And when we think back to medieval war, when we think back to ancient warfare, in our heads we typically go to medieval warfare. You know, knights wearing armor, fighting on horses, and it was always a one-on-one -on -one combat, and the better man would prevail. But that's not what it was like 3,000 years ago. It's been glorified and it's been sanitized for us. But 3,000 years ago, it was dirty and loud and smelly and very, very personal. Uh, you would look in the eyes of the man across from you, and you would know what they had eaten for breakfast that day. You'd know how drunk they were. You would know how long it had been since they washed. And most importantly, you could tell if they were afraid. You looked in their eyes and you knew. You could see if they were afraid, if they were overwhelmed, and if they were seeing battle for the first time. And that's the thing. Most men in battle only went into battle once because casualty rates were so high. And so if you looked into the eyes of an enemy who looked calm and sure of himself, you were in trouble because that meant you were looking into the eyes of a killer. Nothing was more feared than a man who had been through many battles. And to put it simply, you wanted a man who was scared, not scarred. Because if he was scarred that many had done this before, and he'd been successful at it. You see, most armies of David's days were made up of farmers and beggars. The true professional warrior class was rare and uncommon. A king would have had a small professional army, and when they went off to battle, they would recruit people, from men, from boys and, uh, men and boys from villages as they passed along the way. And so by the time an army was arranged on a battlefield, it was mostly inexperienced men with no formal weaponry, no shield, no sword, no armor, no uniform. The regular man probably only had a club or a spear or maybe an axe and a pitchfork. These were inefficient weapons that killed by hacking and slicing and slashing. And that's the tail end of the Bronze Age. A thousand years before the birth of Jesus, very few things were made out of metal. And so this was not the case, though, with Goliath. We get a very in-depth description of Goliath in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. It says this, Then Goliath, the Philistine, Champion came from Gath, who came from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin. You can probably see why we know it's in the Bronze Age on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear, the shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor-bearer walked ahead of him, carrying a shield. And that's the end. I'll stop. Um, so this is what we know about Goliath. And this was not typical of a man going into battle for the first time. This was a man who was a professional soldier. Uh, and I think we have to address this, this number nine feet tall. Uh, they even include an exclamation point in the description. And there's some debate about how tall Goliath was, because they didn't measure, measure in feet and inches back then. And they certainly didn't use the metric system. They used cubits and spans. And we're told that Goliath was six cubits and a span. A span is the distance from the tip of your thumb to the tip of your baby finger if you spread your hand out like this. So if I measure my span, it comes out about eight inches. And I thought it would be interesting, uh, since I'm going to choose some volunteers in a few minutes, to find out who has the bigger hand spans in the room, because that's usually a sign of a warrior. So on the inside aisle here, you're going to see a ruler. I want you to take a measurement of your hand from baby finger to the tip of your thumb in inches and uh, just lock that number in your head. I'm going to come back to it in about a minute. We'll see who has the bigger hands in the group here. 
I don't explain why, but you know what? Nine fi- uh, my, my hand span's about nine inches. Shaquille O'Neal, his is 12 inches. His hand is a foot across. Um, we'll see if anybody can beat that here tonight. But, uh, you know, he may have been nine feet tall. Robert Wadlow was eight foot 11. And so it's not like nine feet is out of the realms of possible. But regardless of his actual height, we knew this was a giant of a man. He was someone who was so tall and so big that he could make an entire army afraid just to see him. We know he's an impressive figure, a professional soldier based on his gear and the fact that he had a shield bear, and massive based on the weight of his armor and his spear. Most of these guys on the battlefield of that day, well, they probably looked like me. Probably best described as having seen too many winters and too few famines. But his height was the key, and that's what made him such an efficient killer on the battlefield. So let's just have y'all stand up for a second. I think I said y'all. Did you hear that? Yeah. Uh, all right, so if, you're, if your hand span is six inches or smaller, I'm going to ask you to sit down. Ask you to sit down. You forgot to measure? Okay. <laughs> if your hand span is seven inches or smaller, I want you to sit down. Eight. Nine. Here we go. This, this will work. All right, if you guys who are still standing, you're going to leave your rulers and come up here for a second. Come up here for a second. This is literally the warrior class. And so I have some bronze shields for them. And I know a lot of you are going to be like, wait, aren't those dollar store pizza pans with duct tape handles? And to you, I would say, I would say this is harder than it looks. Relax. So uh, let's give these guys a shield. And you see, a shield bearer, when, when I hear shield bearer, maybe it's because I think of cup bearer. I think of like a little scrawny guy, right? I think of like the guy who's not as capable, but the shield bearers were strong, strong men. And that was because they had to hold the line. And so they would hold their shields up, and the shields back then weren't much bigger. If you see the big shields, that's newer. That was newer technology. So if you guys all want to kind of step forward and and, and brace yourself and put your shields edge to edge, you're going to have to get in a bit tighter there. And if you guys can actually just take a big step forward. Here we go. So this was the terrifying thing you would see if you were charging this line. You would be nervous. Now, with their other hand, they would have a short, short uh, sword, probably only about a nine-inch blade. And all they did with that sword was they jabbed it underneath, trying to see if they could hit the other guys with the shields who were lining up against them. And so then the job of, of uh, most, some guys would be they would go in behind, and I would take like... I would take my spear, and I would be doing this, and of course, you see the problem. So just imagine for a second, if you guys want to step back a little bit, that you're nine feet tall, that you're nine, that literally, I'm not nine feet even now standing on this stage, and suddenly, I'm so much more effective because I can be using my spear over the shield wall. I, I can't really be hit at all. You'll notice he wore armor on his shins, and that maybe seemed like a strange place for a, for a warrior to wear armor, because again, anything that was coming underneath, I would be protected from, and I would just be doing this 15-pound weight. I would be using the weight of that spear, and I would just be poking away at the next line, right? The guy standing across, spear's coming towards his face, what's he going to do? He might duck. He's probably going to lift that shield up, right? And as soon as he lifts that shield up, because it's so instinctual, 
Chris has got that little, that's, he's got that little sword underneath, and he's just going to be ramming away with that sword. It was brutal. It was brutal. And it was, um, it was loud. Just imagine that these shields are clashing against other shields. Swords are clanging together. People are screaming as they're dying. And something else that's interesting, the entire line would have been virtually naked. All right, let's let you guys sit back down again. Big round of applause. Big round of applause. Awesome, thank you. But it's true. They fought almost naked simply because, although they didn't understand really what an infection was, they knew that if their own clothing would be embedded in their flesh uh, when they were cut, they knew that would lead to some sort of strange disease and it would cost them their lives maybe a few days later. So they literally, they were wearing nothing except for what was made of metal, for the most part, uh, if, they, if they could afford anything like that. And it was dirty. The clouds of dust that would have been um, brought up as these two lines clashed together. And in fact, if you go back about 500 years more recent than that battle with David and Goliath, you go 500 years newer, uh, that's when the great Spartan Wars were. And you may have known that from the movie 300. That's not a recommendation. Don't get me in trouble. But uh, it's that time. And back then, we know that the biggest insult you could give to someone is that you would say they could be def defeated in a dustless fight. It was a little bit like being knocked out in the first round. It was this idea that you could be defeated before you even had a chance to start working up a cloud of dust as you kind of fought against somebody. And so it was, that's where this expression came from. But on this day in, in the Valley of Elah, none of this had begun. There was no loud, dusty battle taking place. There were simply two armies lined up against each other, simply waiting. And this was most likely because neither army had an obvious advantage. If either leader if had started, wanted to start the battle, they could have. If the Philistines were sure they would win, they would have started and they would have attacked. And if the Israelites were sure they could have been victorious, they would have begun. But because they were evenly matched, they assembled on that field every day, and they lined up and they waited. And at the end of the day, they would actually pack up, go back to their camps, eat, sleep, and come back out again the next day. So at some point, the Philistines decided to send out their champion, their great victor, their tall warrior, so that he could call out Israel's champion. The problem was for the Israelites that their champion was Saul. And you may know him better as King Saul. In fact, here's what it says about Saul in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 9. It says, Kish had a son named Saul, a handsome young man, as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. In the New Living Translation, it says it this way, his son Saul was the most handsome man in all of Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. Well, that makes it easy then, doesn't it? Here's their champion, Goliath. Where's our champion? Well, it's Saul. Our king is our champion. He was the biggest. He was the, he was the most decorated uh, warrior. And so this was going to be good. It was going to be champion versus champion. And the fighting men of Israel, they believed in Saul. After all, God had appointed him to be king. He was tall, he was handsome, and he was their champion. And so there was Goliath. I mean, this is going to be great. Saul versus Goliath was not, it wasn't a mismatch like this. It was a little bit more like this. You got to love the rock, eh? The, uh, Okay, I, that is the rock. I, 
I'll be honest, I doctored it. There's actually not that much height difference, so I actually shifted it to make it look better. But that's what it'd be like, you know? A, a, a six foot eight Saul versus a nine foot Goliath. It wasn't this ridiculous mismatch. But it, I gotta love the rock. The, um, reminds me of a story about uh, a youth group. We, uh, we often like to ask the kids at the beginning of the year, that uh, we ask them this question, who would you most like to have dinner with? Who would you most like to have dinner with? And, if, and of course, we instantly put in the rule, you can't say Jesus. Because then 20 kids all say Jesus and, the, and it's over. So we can't say Jesus. There's always one kid who will say, like, you know, Hezekiah or something. And if you want to know if your kid is that weird kid who says Hezekiah, uh, the answer is yes. Um, <laughs> but we're going around and we're getting some really good answers. Like well, the one kid says, I'd like to have dinner with my grandma because she passed away when I was little and I don't really remember her. And we're like awesome. And we go around the circle. Another kid said, I'd like to have dinner with my great-grandfather. He fought in World War II. He flew an airplane for the British. How cool would it be to have dinner with him? I'm like, that's a great answer. And then we get to Candace. And Candace blurts out, The Rock. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, I asked everybody else, why The Rock? And her answer is, have you seen him? (laughs) Anyway. I don't got to love the rock, but she got to love the rock. So, so the question is, where's Saul? Where's the king of Israel? Where's their champion? Because his approval rating is falling. His credibility is dropping. The trust and faith and belief in him from his people is wavering, and the resentment and disdain is starting to grow. And hope, well, hope was dying. He was the chosen of God, but where was he? And so they kept waiting, and for 40 days they waited for Saul. And for 40 days, they were disappointed. Because here's something that is true for everyone, not just in Old Testament times, not just for people in the church, it's for anybody and every, everybody. And it's simply this. We place our hope in what we depend on. If we depend on it, we put our hope in it. And maybe it's better said as we place our hope in who we depend on. And the people of Israel had depended on Saul throughout various battles and conquests. If you read through the chapters leading up to this battle, It is a list of conquest after conquest, victory after victory, Saul, the chosen king of Israel, leading them on. But here's the key idea I want to grab onto. It's that God had never wanted, never planned for the people of Israel to put their hope in their king. God wanted his people, his chosen people, to put their hope in him, to depend on him. And this may seem like a strange thing to say because I already, uh, I already told you that God had chosen Saul as the king of Israel. So I think we need to go back and see how did they get a king? Because they didn't start with one. When they left Egypt, they left Pharaoh behind. Many wanted Moses and later Joshua to be their king, but God didn't want that. What did they get instead? They got the law. And the law was to rule over the people. And who gave them the law? Well, God did. And so as the nation of Israel grew and matured, God appointed Samuel to be their judge. God was their king, and Samuel was their judge, and he was appointed to apply the law for all of the people. But then this happens. We read this in 1 Samuel 8. It says, as Samuel grows old, he appointed his sons to be judge over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. They were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel... Uh, met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. And so Samuel's sons, these judges were, were human, they were flawed, and they were corrupt. And they were famous for applying the golden rule, you know this, 
whoever has the most gold makes all the rules. But the people were upset. And so, so the elders approached Saul, and it must have been a very awkward conversation because here was their message. Their message was, hey, Samuel, we want to talk to you about your kids because they're awful. Uh, your kids are awful people. I know they were a little more diplomatic. In, in verse 5, it picks up. Look, they told him, you are now old, and your sons, well, your sons aren't like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they're rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. I mean, what a heartbreaking thing to hear. The God of all creation, the God who freed them from Egypt, the God who loved each and every one of us so much that he would give up his son for us, that he would say, they don't want me to be their king any longer. But then God continues, ever since I brought them from Egypt, they've continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are living, uh, giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about a way, the way a king will reign over them. Now remember, this is how Israel got a king in the first place, by rejecting God as their king and demanding a human king to rule over them. And remember what we said earlier, replace our hope in who we depend on. And the people of Israel, sick of the corruption and poor treatment from the judges, chose to place their hope in a king instead of their God. And so Samuel does what God asks, and he warns the people. Here's his basic message. He says, look, having a king is going to suck. He said, the king is going to draft your sons into the army. He's going to take your daughters to work in the palace. He will steal your land and crops, and he's going to call it taxes. And you and your children will become his slaves. And he saves the most important till last. He says, and he will steal your donkeys. That's what it says. It's like, it's, that's, the, that's the order Samuel goes in. It's like he's saying, think of your children and your donkeys, because that's what he says to them. And Samuel just says, listen, you don't want a king. Let God be your king. But the people refuse to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, which is another way of saying, regardless of the donkeys, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our, our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said, and the Lord replied, do as they say and give them a king. And then Samuel agreed and he sent the people home. Well, where is your king now, Israel? He's hiding in his tent. He's nervously avoiding eye contact when he, when he makes it with his own men. And he pretends not to hear Goliath's taunts. This doesn't sound like the unbeatable army of God. This sounds like an army, like a people who have lost hope and lost confidence. And that's because of this simple truth. We place our hope in who we depend on, but that also means that we lose hope when those we depend on become undependable. And so we find the people of Israel without hope because they chose a king instead of choosing God to be their king. And now the king is hiding in his tent. But there's one dissenting voice, someone who didn't seem to realize that Goliath was a little too tall and a little too mean to be defeated, someone who had been placing his hope in something else, someone else, this entire time. And so entered David, the lowly shepherd boy. He's not there as a fighter. He's simply delivering food for the troops and since he's there anyway, he checks in and he starts talking to his brothers. And while this is taking place, and he's talking to his brothers, Goliath comes out for the 41st straight day and taunts the army of Israel. And David's response is so interesting. David asked the men, this is in 1 Samuel 17, 26. David asked the men standing near him, 
what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? David's offended. He's offended by this Philistine and what he's saying. But that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Saul should be offended. The army of Israel, all shaking in terror at the sight of this man, should be offended, but not David. He's really the only one that Goliath isn't calling out. But he's the only one who's upset by this. Why? I think the answer is simple, and it has to do with what, who David has placed his hope in and what David uh, depends on. You see, later when David becomes the king of Israel, I hope, I hope that's not a spoiler alert, later David becomes the king of Israel, we see that he loves the law. Most kings simply change the law to meet their needs. Remember the judges? They represented God and the law, and they did, but they didn't follow the law. They bent the law. They changed the law. They adjusted the law, and they found in favor of whoever could put together the biggest bribe. And it's taken a while to get here to the one point of my one-point sermon, but David places his hope in the one he depends on, and that's simply because David saw God as the true king of Israel. He never placed his trust in the king, even when he was the king. And that's where we might have to think about about how we can connect this to our lives today because we don't hold a lot of allegiance to our rulers, our leaders, and our monarchy. Uh, it doesn't mean much in our society. Uh, people don't put their hope in the prime minister or premiers or mayors and certainly not the queen. And if you do, I'm certain that you're often disappointed. So where do we place our hope? Well, if it's not in God, in general, I think there's two answers to that question that we find in our society, but also in our church. And the first is in our relationships. And we know that Mark's been speaking about relationships for the past several weeks. And I believe that the, one of the biggest barriers to healthy relationships with the people we're closest to is that we depend on them for things that they are, they're not responsible for. And when they let us down, when they can't live up to the weight of our expectations for them, there's conflict, there's disappointment, and we lose hope. Because when we depend on them to be our source of joy, our source of self-esteem, of wisdom, of peace, of anxiety-free living, how can we not feel disappointed, not feel let down when they can't support the weight of those expectations? The men in Saul's army depended on him, their king, and when he fails to live up to their expectations, they lose hope. The confidence they once had as a chosen people of God was shaken because Saul could not live up to the weight of those expectations. And I don't blame Saul at all. I don't think I would have wanted to go out and face Goliath either. Even with all my awesome duct tape weapons, I think I would rather have hid in my tent. He wasn't, he wasn't hiding in his tent out of spite. It wasn't to purposely cause his men and his army to doubt and be fearful. I would think it's because he was dealing with his own issues of doubt and fear. And that's not what our loved ones were designed for. God wants to be our king. God wants to be our source for all those things because God has proven to be dependable in all times. That's where we put our hope and we put our hope in someone who could never disappoint us. And the second place that people tend to put their hope is in themselves. For many, as a, for many of, us, of us, we've learned not to rely on other people. We've been hurt. So instead, we look to ourselves. We place our hope in ourselves because that's really who we've learned to depend on. Our successes are exactly that. They're our successes. And we live in a society that tells us to look out for number one, and that you are the only person that you can truly depend on. And so we become our own kings and our own judges, and we place our trust and our hope in the one we believe that we can depend on, and it's us. But it turns out we're also fallible. 
And we become discouraged and lose hope in ourselves when we find that things don't turn out the way that we would like. And I believe that's why David is so beloved by God. Not because of his outward behavior, because again, spoiler alert, David gets himself in a number of very sinful situations in his life. But David saw God as the rightful king, not Saul. So as Saul was taunted and mocked, and the nation of Israel was taunted and mocked, and as the army was taunted and mocked, David knew that it was really God who was being taunted and mocked. So David speaks out, says that it's a disgrace, and that our God is bigger than their giant. And since God is for us, we have no need for fear. And the response from those around him is surprising. Instead of rallying to David's war cry, they ridicule him. It says his own brothers burned with anger because of what he was saying. Now imagine how excited Saul was, though, when he got word that somebody was at least talking tough. Somebody was showing some backbone. Somebody was uh, standing up for the people of Israel, for the army of Israel, and for Saul. And so he, he called out and said, bring this man to my tent. And Saul hears about it, and he's waiting. And can you imagine the look on his face when he sees David? When he sees David, he was really excited. I have a volunteer, someone who is going to take this off of my plate. And the second he sees him, this baby-faced 15-year-old teenager, this kid, we remember what we said at the beginning. We want to see somebody who is scarred, not scared. But David wasn't scarred or scared, but he was confident. And he was confident because he had killed the lion and the bear that had attacked his sheep. And David knew that it was God who had allowed him to do this, and it would be God who would allow him to defeat Goliath. And so Saul questions as to whether David is serious about wanting to fight Goliath. And David responds like this. He says, David persisted. I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. To which I'm sure Saul said, okay. <laughs> it's not really a job description I wanted to hear, but all right. He says, when a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns to me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too. For he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from the Philistine. I love the way the Message Bible puts it. They basically summarize paragraphs at a time instead of words at a time uh, as, as they translate it, and it says it this way. It said, David replied, lion or bear, it made no difference. I killed it. And I'll do the same to the Philistine pig who is taunting us as we speak. David's hope is in who he depends on, and it's not Saul. It's not the army just outside that tent. It's not his family. It's not his brothers outstanding on the line. And it's not in himself. It's in God. Listen to what he says to Goliath as he stands there. As he walks out, and he's probably standing 50 feet away from Goliath. And his entire army is standing behind him. And Goliath's entire army is standing behind him. And I don't know about you, but if I'm going out there, I'm thinking, let's not poke the bear. You know, I'm going to let Goliath know, listen, sorry, we're going to have to do this. I don't think I'm going to become, uh, you know, too verbose in what I say. But instead, this is what David says. He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty and with the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. I will strike you down and I will cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of your entire army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. 
And those gathered here will know that it wasn't by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And he did. And although David defeating Goliath shouldn't have led to the entire army being destroyed, it did. Because the Philistine army makes a terrible mistake. They start running away. And you can't defend yourself as you're running away. It's not as if your shield carrier is going to be running behind you, holding that shield on your back, protecting you. And so the entire army was destroyed throughout that day as they ran. Not just defeated, but eliminated. And after all of this happened, David, still clutching Goliath's head, goes back to Saul. And almost immediately, Saul becomes jealous of David. Not jealous because of what David accomplished, because that's what Saul wanted done, but because of his own failings. And that's where we'll pick it up next time when we talk about David versus Saul. But just to finish up tonight, I think one of the great things about the life of David is we have access to knowing what, knowing what he was thinking. So as, you know, as we read through the book of Samuel and into 1 Kings, uh, we hear what David says and what David did. But we can also read the Psalms. And by reading those, we can find out what David thought and what he believed. I think the best insight is into David's heart for God is what David uh, wrote in Psalm 25. It says this, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come to those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. You always need to be careful when you decide you're going to summarize Scripture. Um, but I, I wanted to just kind of shorten that into a single statement. And so I would do that this way. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust, and my hope is in you all day long. Because we place our hope in, what we de- in who we depend on. And that's the only one that we can depend on 100% of the time we know is our God. Because if God can do all of this for David, what can he do for you? If God can save David from a lion and a bear and a giant, can't he be depended on or trusted with what's going on in your life and the problems that you face? Are, the problems, are your problems too great for God? I can't answer for you, but I can answer for myself with a resounding no. And when I struggle to believe this, when I struggle to live this out, when I place myself as king in my own life, I just choose to remember the words that God spoke to Samuel. And I simply insert my name. And I think, what would it hear like to hear my Lord and my Savior say, you know, Gary's rejecting me, not you. Gary doesn't want me to be his king any longer. And I think then that's when I choose to speak the words of David and simply say, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust and my hope is in you all day long. And I would imagine that David probably whispered that the entire time he was walking up to Goliath and the entire time he he was uh, facing off against him. But he didn't waver and he didn't falter because he believed it 100%. Because he truly did place his hope in the one who he chose to depend on. Let's pray. Lord, just so thankful. So thankful for um, just the narrative that we can read about the life of David. Uh, someone that you would come out and say that this was somebody who was after your own heart. How can we not want him to mimic that? How can we not want to learn more about that? So thankful, Lord. So thankful for your word. So thankful for your church. So, so thankful for your people. 
And Lord, I just pray that uh, throughout this week, we take some time and just think about what it means to put you first, to put you in the position of king, not just advisor, but to put you in the position of king. So thankful for that. So thankful, uh, sorry, so thankful for this Kingsway, Kingsway family. We just pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.